This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. This week's uh, podcast is taken from a talk that Ramdas gave in 1993 at the Omega Institute, and it's. Uh, it's around relationship, community, and the spiritual quest. It's uh, the interesting f- first part of this thing for me was Ramdas quoted from uh, the Dzogchen Tibetan teachings of Dzogchen, and I thought it was a good opportunity to even uh, bring up what this particular uh, these teachings. Uh, are about uh, and uh, one of our uh, brothers, guru brothers from the India days whose name is Lama Surya Das and you may have bumped into him uh, through work that he has done with Ram Das over the last few years visiting him in Maui and we've done some great videos with him he's a really down to earth Lama who has uh, spent real time uh, practicing for many years, uh, meditation in caves and so on. He's done a three-year retreat, which is no small feat, and uh, and has become a practitioner of, of Dzogchen, so you can check him out. But basically, Dzogchen is the natural primordial state or natural conditions condition. It's a central uh, teaching um that is referred to in the Nyingma, Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, and it's known as the highest and most definitive path to enlightenment. Um, this uh, little passage that Ramdas reads, interestingly enough, is directly, of course, connected to his uh, Be Here Now. I mean, the first couple of stanzas are Prolong Not the Past and invite not the future. So uh, it's pretty relevant. I guess that's why he chose this passage. But what really, uh, there's a actually a pretty great book called The Crystal and the Way of Light by Chogyal Namka Norbu, a great Tibetan Lama. And uh, I love what he says about the essence of, of uh, Dzogchen. I'll just read this little passage. Most people think that all religion is based on faith, which they regard as little better than superstition, with no relevance to the modern world. But Dzogchen shouldn't be regarded as a religion, and it doesn't ask anyone to believe in anything. On the contrary, it suggests that the individual observe him or herself and discover for themselves what their actual condition is. So it's very, very direct teaching, and uh, Ramdas elucidates this a little bit around this particular uh, passage that he reads from. And the other part of this that struck me is uh, the talk that he in this talk is is how he brings up our relationship to each other and community. And what we have called uh, in in India, what is called satsang, which is a community of people who are all 
searching for the truth and have that commonality. Um, I would say in my own experience that that uh, satsang, or in Buddhism called sangha, or just community of like-minded people who are supporting each other to find um, what their condition is, to get that inner truth, to get at it. And I, over the years, of the many, many years that we have had, you know, this incredible satsang, which has been a, a wonderful support for us in all kinds of different uh, uh, venues and, and uh, time zones and countries. I mean, we, we, got, we, you know, of course, initially gathered together in India. And there's that famous quote from our friend uh, Larry Brilliant, who was sort of dragged kicking to see Maharaji, Nimkaroli Bama, by his wife, and uh, subsequently he found himself one day sitting with a group of people, and he had this thought, wow, it's not so much that Maharaji loves me, you would expect that from any saint. It's more that he found himself loving everybody else in in the group, you know, most of whom he didn't have any idea about. He did not know them. And it was that connectivity that we had, you know, he, he, he tells it a lot more eloquently um, in, uh, in the book, A Miracle of Love, Ram Dass's book. And since that time that we experienced that connectivity um, between us all, at a soul level, or at a true nature level, if you might say, um, based on what we're talking about right now, Dzogchen, which is finding our true, true nature through that particular practice. And since then, this has been a central theme of our ability to continue to share what it is that we got in those in the early 70s uh, living with maharaji in india and in fact in in recent years um, i remember one time i visited uh, kenshi where we met most of us met maharaji initially in the foothills of the himalayas and and we've mentioned this before as well that there is a resident saint named sidima who has been taking care of Maharaji's ashrams, at least a number of them in the north of India. And, you know, she's like our Indian mother and has been for all these years. And I remember being with a group of Westerners uh, in a darshan with her. And one of them, who was fairly new to the scene, said, uh, Ma, what is it that we can do that would enhance... He didn't say it quite like that, but how, how, what's the best thing we can do to help us on, on the spiritual path, help us get closer to Maharaji or to our own true selves? And she said, the, the absolute best thing you can do is gather together and, and sing the Chalisa, she said. I mean, basically, gather together, have food chant 
and be in satsang. And that is, you know, absolutely one of the most uh, efficacious uh, things that we have done on this path for each other, for ourselves, and for sharing with people who've never experienced it before. And Ramdas says it really well in this talk. He says, it, that community is us as human beings together in the shelter of each other. That's what satsang is. A community of beings acknowledging the dual intention in this life, which is working on yourself as an offering to others, and you work with others as a way of working on yourself. And, uh, you know, I can't, again, stress how beneficial it is. I know I, I, for instance, moved to North Carolina a few years ago from Los Angeles, where we had a an incredible uh, group of people, satsang, doing chanting and feeding and having satsangs. And, uh, and I moved here and I didn't know anybody. My wife and I knew that she had moved from California as well. And, you know, it's taken a few years, but somehow Maharaji gravitated these people around our desire to, you know, to do chanting and feed people and, and just commune that way. And it has been, uh, you know, a tremendous blessing. So I highly, highly recommend anybody, whoever and wherever you are, there are kirtans going on and chants going on where people can gather together and yeah, a lot of them are at yoga centers and it's not quite the same when you know when there's a charge involved but there still is a great community that you can meet there and enough said about that and uh i, I i'll mention one other thing from this thing that really struck me this talk just that our lives are training sessions to turn ourselves into instruments of true kindness, instruments that are healing, in which we, our purpose is to allow a healing to go on amongst ourselves. And our intention, of course, is to relieve suffering and be free of the effects of, su of suffering. Every situation in my life is part of the process of becoming free of fear. Uh, the only reason we're suffering is that we're holding on to a stash of something. I like that stash. A stash is having a concept that is dissonant from what is. And that would be central to the idea of Dzogchen. By the way, that's spelled D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N. You can look it up. And uh, as I say, Lama Suryadas is a, is a major promote, pro proponent of this particular teaching. So here we go. Ramdas, here and now, relationship, community, and the spiritual quest. There's an interesting uh, five-liner from um, uh, the Dzogchen teachings that says... Um, Prolong not the past. Invite not the future. 
Do not alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. There is nothing more than that. It's interesting that five lines like that is an entire teaching. You could spend your life just with those five lines. Don't prolong the past. Did you follow that one? (laughs) Probably you don't remember. (laughs) Try don't invite the future. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Because you're always standing right at the edge of the mystery. I don't know. It's like the student came up to the Zen master and he said, Master, what happens after death? And the master said, I don't know. And the student said, You're a master, you should know. He said, Yes, but I'm not a dead master. <laughs> This is Jai Lakshman, by the way. He's in deep meditation, so he can't show any reactions. (laughs) He's just here to vibe the place. He's just focused on lunch. (laughs) Jai and I have been together. We've been working together for 14 years. And it's such fun having a... um, A mensch busting you all the time. (laughs) Through just incredible love. Don't alter your innate wakefulness is the third line. That's an interesting one. Your wakefulness, just your, uh, your awareness, your appreciation of what is. Don't alter it. Don't get it all twisted up through clinging to the past or the future or to any concept. Let it always rest in itself. In this room, just here we are. The fourth line is don't fear appearances. Meaning... In that state of, I don't know what it means, but in that state of awareness, that kind of spacious presence, phenomena arise. Don't be afraid of them. Ah, here's this. Ah, here's that. Here's this. Here's that. Here's my vision of the future. Here's my fear of loss. Here's my... Don't fear appearances. 
So the minute you fear appearances, you lose the space from which you're seeing it all. Our job is to get free of the entrapment of fear. And the fear is rooted in our lack of faith in what is. You keep wanting to control everything. But you rush to control it all. Because if I don't control it, it'll all turn to shit. You of little faith. How do you know the shit isn't just what you need? <laughs> How do you know? And the last line is, there is nothing more than that. It's a full set of instructions. Out of all that comes compassion. All of it. If you and I are here as a training session, to turn ourselves into instruments of um, true kindness, into instruments that um, that are healing instruments in the sense of Stephen Levine's title of his last book, Healing into Life or Death, Life and Death. Don't get healing too narrowly defined. See, I think you and I share exactly the same intention. My intention has two big components in it. I mean, this is arbitrary, but there are two. One is that when I stay open, I experience the immensity of the suffering of form. And there is a yearning in me to relieve that suffering. That's one of the intentions. And the other intention rests in the understanding that for me indeed to be a relief for that suffering, I must be free of suffering, of the effect of suffering, of getting caught in suffering. You can't free another if you're trapped. And therefore, I see that the work all must be upon myself. So that every situation in my life must be part of that process of me becoming free of fear, fear of what is. So I can be fully present in what is in a quiet way, and out of that will come through judo, through whatever, through that process, as in Aikido. Out of rest comes the appropriate action. One does nothing and nothing is left undone. Line of the Tao. It's interesting because the um, the immensity of the suffering 
and the imminence of the breakdown of systems is a very entrapping set of concepts. I mean, you have no idea what's going to happen next. All you have is some projections in your mind. Your attachment to those projections increases your fear. Because you're constantly comparing everything to your projection. When the Gita says to be attached to the fruits of the action is to go astray. You want the world to be saved? You want us to get ecological consciousness in time? Would you like violence to end in the middle, in the inner cities? Would you like the Arabs and Israelis to live in true peace? Would you like South Africa to be now happy? Would you like Eastern Europe to finally remember the beauty of their heritage and find a way through their ethnic diversity conflict? Like Rwanda to recognize its act, would you like? Would you like? Can you feel how that yearning to have all of that change and be different? How powerful that pull is. And what is it like to sit with all that and say, ah, yes, and here we are. All that. Because the judging mind definitely closes you down makes you a less effective instrument for action. Because you and I don't know why it is the way it is. We have the presumption to assume we do. That our rational minds have figured it out. That everybody's supposed to live happily ever after. But we don't really know that. It's very bizarre, and it always seems like some horrible obscenity to say one of the highest spiritual statements, suffering is grace. What chutzpah. What a horrible thing to say. doesn't mean you rush up to somebody that's suffering and say, it's grace. But as far as your suffering is concerned and mine, all I know is it... The only reason I'm suffering is because I'm holding on to a stash of something or other. The stash is having a concept that is dissonant from what is. That's the root of the suffering. That's Buddha's Four Noble Truths. Clinging of mind, the end of clinging, the end of suffering. Of my suffering means I can't lay the trip on you except now because you're in the cave with me. And we're talking the way it is today. So welcome to the cave. I've been um, off duty for uh, seven months. Meaning not doing this. So this is the first one of these. So it's always interesting. What level do you want to play at? I mean, it's really hard to get out of the 
entertainer. The, you paid all this money to come, overpaid to come to this thing, you know, and you're all a little pissed off at it and you can really want something out of it and I got to produce or somehow we'll all be in hell together and then you'll want to come again and then I won't have any income and then, oh God, my life will change and then on and on and on and on. And that whole set of models is what uh, does in the scene, actually. Is It's just us human beings together in the shelter of each other. This is what satsang or sangha is. This is it. This is the community of beings who are acknowledging that dual intention. You work on yourself as an offering to others, you work on others as a way of working on yourself. Circle's complete. And everything is part of that circle. All of it. And you don't try, and you enjoy the process, because it may be an unending one. There's no, well, I've done that. So let's sound our sound. Let's um, just each of us find your own sound quietly. And then let's just for about two full minutes together make our sound. And at first make your sound and then listen your way into the collective sound. At the same time you're making your sound, listen your way. Become the listener of the collective sound and the tuning to it. And let's do that for a couple of minutes. Is that all right with everybody?
our art form is to cultivate this space and recognize that we are meeting in it and share the essence space behind the form. Not the words, not the bodies, not the hotel, not the time, but just presence. I'll read you something from D.H. Lawrence. The common denominator of attaining harmony of the individual and the community is their universal aspect, their more fundamental being. At the level of deepest self, people can relate to one another without mutual destruction or loss of individuality. But trying to impose unity upon diverse people at the more superficial level, whether by love, coercion, or group process, is to do violence, to make anthills or beehives. Lawrence is reminding us that unless we meet in the deeper place of our beings together, the acts we do one another to with one another will involve violence and thus exacerbate suffering. It's as if at the level of personality, at the level at which you say, I need satsang or I need community or I want, whatever comes out of that identification with that desire, in some subtle way does violence the minute it acts out of that to the universe. I would like you to be more compassionate. Therefore, I will do something to you to try to make you more compassionate. What presumption of me? What presumption? The other day there was a, a luncheon that I was uh, kindly invited to group called the Temple of Understanding. Mickey was there with me. Interesting lunch. Mm -hmm. And there were some, uh, there was a man from the United Nations. And there are this group of people that are looking for ways to bring the spirit more, in a more manifest way to the United Nations. Beautiful intent. And they were kind enough to ask me to lunch 
to ask my opinion as to how they might do that. That's pretty far out. They all came in dark blue suits. I mean, it's fun getting old. And I saw that when they asked me genuinely and expressed their pain of having an institution that is so encrusted in bureaucracy, in which all the diplomats are all so caught in the dynamics of the roles that there's hardly any space. And if you want to have a spiritual meeting, it depends on who you know as to how a room you get that determines the status of the thing. You know the Secretary General, you can get a certain meeting room where when you meet in that, everybody knows the Secretary General is approving of it. So it's like looking to worldly power to justify the spirit. And the man of the United Nations said an interesting thing. He says the secretaries in the office carry so much of the spiritual heart of the United Nations. They pray for the successful outcome of things. They have their, their religion very close at hand. And as I listened, I was so humbled because I could feel the, uh, the immensity of the entrapping conditions in which they all live and how hard it is for any space to appear in that. I'll give you another one other example. Because I'm really having a ball these years because finally somebody asks. So I was with a, a very beautiful man who's a speechwriter for uh, Bill Clinton. And he works in the White House every day. And he's a very fine speechwriter. A very uh, light beautiful guy. So when I was first with him one night, I said to him, is there any space in the White House? Is there any holder of consciousness? Is there anybody that isn't in a power role? Is there anybody like the way kings used to have wise elders around? Is there anybody to keep the perspective? Is there any silence? Is there any reflection rather than reaction? Is there anybody that honors that there is something beyond the intellect? I don't question whether everybody would like to do good there, because I, I really feel they would. One of my friends was in the White House about two weeks ago, and one of our guru brothers, and he said he was blown away that all the offices within, like an office of Bill Clinton's, all had huge posters of Save the Whale and the trees being burned and, and child abuse. And I mean, it was just like a college dormitory. <laughs> but as I wrote to him, and he and I had been writing back and forth, 
the letter I got back from him when I said now, you know, about creating some of this space, he says, well, you've got to understand the past week we've dealt with Whitewater, we've dealt with Bosnia, we've dealt with uh, Haiti, we've dealt with, and he listed all the things they were dealing with. And I realized it was like writing to somebody in the middle of the Vietnam foxholes, saying to them, now be spacious. And they got a, they're saying, yes, right, and a bullet goes over their heads. I mean, the inside that Bell Park, Parkway is a war zone. And that humbled me. I mean, I'm asking, if you and I are accepting our responsibility, because we appreciate that wisdom tempers behavior, and that what the world could use now is a little wisdom rather than more knowledge. For a while last year, I thought of starting the President Bill Club. It wasn't a club that had any membership or dues or anything. It would just be a club where you'd either feel you were part of it or you wouldn't. And what it was for was to resonate with the... Because take imagine, just for a moment, pardon my political thing, but this is just fun to play with. Imagine Bill Clinton. He's a smart guy. And he's smart enough to realize that suffering is the only game in town. Relief of suffering is the only game in town. And he has the chance in that role to play. When the Dalai Lama met Clinton, he bowed the first time at the uh, Al Gore's office, and he said, your, your role, your, you are the most significant leader in the world today, and it is vital that your every act be motivated solely by compassion. Great one-liner to give to to Bill Clinton. That's wisdom. That's the wise person giving the a wiser. And Bill Clinton later on a reception line said, "I think I've just met a remarkable man." And that's it. I think he does know it's a remarkable man. And what I thought was, what would I? What faith would I have to have in his basic? goodness in the sense of dharmic wanting to relieve suffering to allow me to support him in the presence of his centrist policies which many of which are not harmonious with my values and say look he's in a position that I'm not in and he realizes that unlike the 60s where we polarized everybody he realized now that if unless everybody goes along nobody goes and that a centrist position is much better because the power of what happened in the 60s, of that opening of the relative nature of relative reality and perception that so empowered everybody and collectively that all the movements got so much juice. They didn't start there, but they were juiced by the, and the civil rights movement, the sexual freedom movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, the... On and on. Women's movement, the environmental movement. And for the people that weren't having the experience of experiencing the reality, relative reality and seeing that we were all one and therefore it was silly to act in ways to keep dividing us, people that didn't have that experience got very frightened by our antics.
because it felt like they were moving right to the precipice of chaos and anarchy. And they were going to lose their power. People get frightened when they're going to lose their power because they feel so little and vulnerable. And so there came the conservative and fundamentalist movements. And I feel as much responsible for creating them as the greatest TV evangelist. And this time we have more nachos, we have more, more understanding. We don't have to polarize. This isn't a revolution, this is evolution. At this moment it's too late for revolution. This revolution repeats the same game over and over again. The time for evolution. And you and I are part of the game. And you're not, you and I are here as a training program, really. We're all in training. Because I realized when those United Nations people asked me, and I felt the pain of their predicament, and when Dave from the White House, David told me what it was like there, and I experienced the pain of the entrapment, the power of that entrapment, I realize you're asking those people to want nothing in the midst of that fire system. And how can I ask them when I still want something? Because I want them to change. It's Gandhi's thing when that woman came with a little boy and said, Mahatmaji, tell him to stop eating sugar. And Gandhi said, come back in a week. And the woman had a long trip to do and with, you know, buffalo cart and stuff. And it was, she didn't like the idea, but she came back in a week. And in a week, she came back with a boy and she stood in front of Gandhi and Gandhi said to the boy, give up sugar. She said, couldn't you have told him that last week? He says, last week I hadn't given up sugar. I'm not an advocate of renunciation, by the way. I was, and I saw it as an extremely useful path. But I now see what's demanded of us is more than that, that if you push away anything, it's got you. What's to renounce? Your desire systems, the world, nature. We can't afford to, to renounce anything. We've got to embrace it all. All of it. And what I realized with both of those situations was that I didn't really, I wasn't really ready to say, suggest what they should do. All I could say to them was work on yourself. That don't get caught in righteousness, don't get caught in helping somebody. <laughs> Doesn't mean don't help them. Just don't get caught in it. How can you not help them? It hurts and you do what you can. But don't get caught in righteousness. It's such a drag. I'm helping you. I'm helping you. Don't help anybody. And you know what he said? Hey, yeah, would, take that off the tape, would you? That's going <laughs> to ruin my image of being a compassionate person because it's the next level of compassion. If you really want to help somebody instead of just rip off the experience of helping them for yourself, 
give up helping anybody. And then just be with them and see what happens. And finally, that's what I was with those people at the United Nations. We finally were just there together in the face of the mystery. We didn't know what to do. In the absence of knowing what to do, I always feel if I'm in a place where I'm trying to make a decision and I think there's a choice to be made, I must be standing in the wrong place. Because there's another place in which the universe is a flow of forces. And if I would just shut up, I would hear how it came out anyway. Since the future is all here as much as the past, it all turns in on itself if it's all lawful play. I'm just, to the extent I'm form and doing something, thinking something, I'm a pawn in a game of forces. I think I'll... <laughs> Where'd that come from? I just want it. I have free will, I decided. Well, you did, just said, I have free will, and you turned your head. You know how will you learn that? <laughs> Interesting, your father used to do. No, I did that. It's my own decision. Forget it. Forget it. You've been had. The extent you think you're somebody doing something, you've been had. Why do you hang in that place? You're so busy being dramatic about it all. Will I? Won't I? Can I? Can't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? It's a great story I just read in the Milo's book, I guess. Little boy comes home from school and the teacher said, and the father said, what did you study today? And the kid said, sex. And the father said, yes, well, what did you learn? Well, first the priest told us why we shouldn't. Then the doctor told us how we shouldn't. And then the teacher told us where we shouldn't. Sound familiar? No wonder we're all screwed up. Here's one other interesting story. A couple with a baby enters a house and they yell, Mom, Dad, we're home. And the old mother and father come out from the other room and they embrace the couple and they hold the child and they say, My, how you've grown. And everybody laughs and they're all happy and they go in and eat in the kitchen. Now that all sounds like one thing. But in the story, these people had never met one another before. It was a Japan Japanese rental agency that rents families to visit relatives you don't have time to visit. And a computer engineer who lived 10 minutes from his parents who didn't have time to visit them, hired this group of entertainers at $1,150 for three hours to come to the home as child surrogates. And they had a pleasant three-hour visit. 
And at the end, the old parents said, we hope later to be able to live with our children. But for now, instead of ever taking more vacations, we'd much rather have another visit from a surrogate family. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting in a conference like this, in which there is an emotional pull to be community, to be, uh, to say, we should heal the family, we should heal the community, we should heal the extended. I don't know that to be a fact. I will tell you that of the communities I've been in, it's a toss-up of whether they are more liberating or more constricting. People talk about the beauty of small villages where all the roles are present and everybody's there and there's the extended family. That is potentially beautiful. But many people that grew up in small villages felt the incredible pressure of oppression in our town, in Thornton Wilder's our town. The way I experience it, when I reflect, is that when we take birth, we need community. We need it to survive and socialize us. We need it, we need it because we are incarnates and we need other incarnates for, to figure out how to play the game. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.